Well, let's open God's Word, and we want to look at God's Word. We want to see what God has to tell us. He speaks through His Word. I think it was John Piper who said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. And that is what we do in church, don't we? We, we read the Scripture. We pray, really, the Scripture back to God. As we read it, it teaches us our language of prayer. We sing the Scriptures, essentially the theology of the Scriptures, in our songs. And then we proclaim, we preach the Word of God. We proclaim the Scriptures. This morning we're in Romans chapter 2, finishing chapter 2, Lord willing, this morning. And we've been looking at the need for the Gospel. The need for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And how it is the only way of salvation. So many people out there say there's other ways of salvation. There's other religions. The newer idea is that a person can be saved by Christ but not believe in Christ. It's an inclusive gospel. That if you're a good person under a different religion, Christ might also save you if you're good enough. But we know, we know because God's word tells us, that there's only one way of salvation, that's through Christ, and that we must have faith in Christ. We must trust in Him as our Savior. And so Paul has been establishing this fact in the book of Romans. And we pick up now this morning in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. I want to preach to you a message entitled, Appearance versus the Reality of Salvation. There's an appearance of salvation that some have, and then there's a reality of salvation that some have. So let me read to you the text, Romans 2, 25 through 29. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man observes the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, will he not judge you who, through the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God." Amen. This is a gospel message. We may not realize it when we read about circumcision and Jewish law. This is Paul proclaiming the bad news to the Jews. And it's very applicable to Christianity today. In fact, I want to read to you an excerpt from a book I read some years ago, putting this in the context of baptism and how people trust in baptism, and how people trust in walking an aisle and praying a prayer. The book that I read was called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And in this book, the author begins by recounting the number of times he performed outward signs of Christianity to show himself and others that he had been truly saved. He struggled with this idea of assurance, so he kept doing these things to assure himself and others that he was saved. He writes, I asked Jesus to come into my heart again and again, this time with the resolve to be much more intentional about my faith. I requested rebaptism and gave a very moving testimony in front of our congregation about getting serious with God. He says, I walked a lot of aisles during those days. I think I've been saved at least once in every denomination. Because I understood baptism to be a post-salvation confession of faith, each time I gained a little assurance, 
I felt like I should get rebaptized four times total. Honestly, it got pretty embarrassing. I became a staple at our church's baptism services. I got my own locker in the baptismal changing area. This is a funny account of a man who truly struggled with his assurance and felt like it was about the outward signs. It took him some time to, to realize that it wasn't about that. But this kind of problem is endemic to Christianity. From the early time in the church up to today, the issue that people tend to want to look at outward appearances. They want to look at things they've done and show others what they've done as a Christian instead of look at the inner person, the heart, what we truly are before God when we're alone with Him. So this problem is not just a Christian problem, as I just read to you, but it was a Jewish problem and still is a Jewish problem today. And Paul's been addressing the Jew in chapter 2 because the gospel is for the Gentile and it's also for the Jew. He addressed the Gentile in chapter 1. He's come to the Jew in chapter 2. And he has been telling the Jew that the Jew is a sinner too. The Jew is a sinner too. And we could say today the person who's grown up knowing the Bible and grown up going to church and grown up having a Christian family is still a sinner too. Because those things don't save you. And so he's been convincing with his biblical argument the Jewish person who says, you know what, I don't need to trust in Christ. I have all of these things in Judaism that make me saved. And the two main pillars, the two main pillars, they have the law, which Paul looked at there in 21 through 24. We addressed that. really starts back in 17, just asking them some questions and making sure they understand what they're supposed to be. And then he says, you don't fulfill those commands. You have the law, but you don't actually live it out. Just because you have a Bible doesn't automatically make you saved. And the second pillar, the second thing that the Jews trust in is circumcision. So how did he address the first one? He said, look, just because you have the law does not make you saved. You need to live it out. There are Gentiles who live out the law. We know later that'll be Christians. He'll talk about that later in the book of Romans. Gentiles who get converted and they actually obey God. But you as a Jew, as an unbelieving Jew, you don't even obey what you know to be true. And now he's going to address this issue of circumcision. And I want us to look at this in two parts. We can look at this this morning in two parts. First of all, outward conformity to rituals does not save. Some outward conformity. Doing an outward sign, even if God commands that outward sign, by doing it, it alone does not save you. It does not keep you from the judgment. Yes, we should obey the commands of God. But the most important thing is faith. Faith that comes from a heart that loves the Lord, that looks to the Lord for salvation. And so Paul is going to go after really the most sacred cow in Judaism at the time, circumcision. And he's going to deal with this issue that they're trusting in their circumcision, their, their covenant with Abraham, really, that's shown by circumcision to save them. Verse 25, For indeed, he says, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. It is a benefit. It is of value. But before we talk about the benefit, the value that the Jew had by circumcision, we need to describe what it is and why it's important. You probably know circumcision is a surgical procedure performed among Jews on male infants who are eight days old. And it's commanded in Scripture to be that way. Also, male converts to Judaism out of a, a pagan Gentile life 
they could convert to Judaism and be circumcised as well. It's a removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. And it serves as a sign. It's a sign that that person is different. That they're called out. That they're part of God's covenant. To really understand it, we need to go back to the very beginning. Let's go to the book of Genesis and chapter 17. In chapter 17, God gives this sign to Abraham. So really, it goes back before Moses. Before the Mosaic law was given, the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham. The very first Jew, if you want to use that term. First Hebrew. The first Israelite, even though that name would come later as well. Genesis 17 and verse 9. God says to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. God had made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. And God promised to bless him. And God promised to even give him a land and even bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring. We know that would happen through the gospel, through Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. But look what he says here, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed, that's your descendants, after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Yes, there were people in Egypt that practiced circumcision. There were different groups throughout the ancient world that sometimes practiced circumcision. But he is saying, now every descendant of yours, Abraham, will be circumcised. And you might even remember when Moses didn't circumcise his sons and they were coming out of Egypt, they were going on the journey, and his wife had to circumcise his sons. And she got pretty mad at Moses for having to do that. And she said, you know, you, you've made me do this bloody thing that I have to do to your sons. Because God was about to kill Moses. He had not followed this command. Well, let's continue looking here in verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. One who is born in the house or who is bought with money for any, from any foreigner. Who is not of your seed. So even slaves that come in to Israel. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. This is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. And you show that you're in that covenant by performing this for your male children. Verse 14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Anybody who refused to do that wasn't part of the Jewish people, wasn't a descendant of Abraham physically, because they had rejected that teaching. They had rejected the teaching of the law, the teaching of Scripture. And so God made sure that Moses also stated that again in the Mosaic Law, but it goes all the way back to Abraham. It was ordained for people, the descendants of Abraham, as a sign of the covenant. But why? Why did God choose that? Today, in our modern minds, we think that's somewhat strange. The male sexual organ to be circumcised for religious reasons. But what God is teaching them there, and what God is doing, is He says, because the male organ contains the seed that is only capable of producing other depraved sinners. It is a reminder, first of all, that what do we produce other than little depraved sinners? 
no matter how cute they are, no matter how wonderful they are at birth, you don't have to be a parent very long to know that they are sinners and they will sin. And they need a savior just like their parents need a savior. And you don't have to be 40, 50, 60 years old. You start sinning as soon as you're able to act out that sin nature. So first of all, it's that reminder. But along with that and along with the covenants that God gave and mentioned circumcision is this idea that only God can save that sinner. Man can only produce sinners, but God can save a sinner. And through the Abrahamic covenant, he promised to do that, to bless all the families of the earth. And it was an everlasting covenant. So it's an illustration, really, of depravity of man and man's need for divine cleansing. Man's need for divine cleansing. It can only come from God. If all we can do, the best we can do, is produce this little cute sinner, it's going to take God to save a person. We can't think we're special because we can reproduce people. We have to know that God saves, that God is the true Savior. And so it was this constant reminder every generation on those theological topics, those truths that they needed to know. And it was in this meeting, by the way, in Genesis 17, back in verse 5, the same discussion that God and Abraham are having, that God changes his name. It was Abram, which means exalted father. And now he changes it to Abraham, which is father of a multitude. Again, pointing to this idea that Abraham is going to father a great multitude. And Abraham's seed, descendants, will be blessed if they're in the covenant. Now, a modern conservative Jew even holds to this. The conservative Jews say circumcision today, as in the past 4,000 years, is not a detail of hygiene. Jews don't do it for hygiene. They don't do it for cosmetic reasons. He says, It is the old seal of the pledge between Abraham and his creator. A sign in the flesh, a mark at the source of life. Now, Paul's back to Paul here in Romans 2. He is telling them <clears throat> that they can't trust in their circumcision. They can't trust in doing the law. They can't trust in being circumcised. That is not going to save you. That is an outward sign. That's what he's trying to get them to realize. Abraham, by the way, wasn't saved through his circumcision either, was he? Paul's going to come to that. Abraham had faith. Abraham had faith that God is the Savior, that God would save him. And then God gave the sign. And then God told him to be circumcised. And so Paul is not saying here that the national Jew should never have been circumcised. He's not saying you made a mistake by circumcising your children and getting circumcised. He's not saying that. National Jews, even today, still circumcise. He's saying simply, you can't trust in that as a guarantee of your salvation. That's the problem. They trusted in the law. They trusted in their circumcision. And so Paul is going to dig and dig on this and make them realize that's wrong. Because over time, it had become not just a sign of what God has done in the heart, but a sign of guaranteeing salvation. They put their confidence in this sign. Listen to some of the early rabbis who taught this very thing. Rabbi Manakim said, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Another rabbinic writing states, Circumcision saves from hell. Another says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Another says, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. So you get the idea from these early writings 
that all you had to do was just be circumcised and grow up as a Jew. And if you die early or live a long life, you're not going to hell. You're going to be with God. You're going to be with Abraham. But even in the Old Testament, there was a warning, a warning not to trust in your circumcision. Even back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, Israel is in sin. They're about to go into exile. They're about to be punished. And Jeremiah 9.25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. So God says, A day is coming when I'm going to punish all sinners, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples, all the pagans who do these different practices. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. God punishes sinners. God sends people to hell for their sin unless they trust in Christ. He's not partial. Paul's already said that in Romans 2. He's not a partial judge. Yes, he blessed Israel. Yes, he chose them. Yes, he gave them the Bible. And we'll look at that in chapter 3 of Romans. But if someone sins and they don't trust in Christ for salvation, they will be punished. Now, this is indeed a struggle for early Christians. Even today, there are Christians trying to go back and take on the yoke of the law and circumcision. One of those movements is called Hebrew Roots, where they dress like a Jew, they get remarried in the Jewish custom, they wear tassels, they wear head coverings, and they do the food laws of a Jew. But in the early church, early church, this was a struggle. Acts 15, you have a council that met just to determine this. Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren near Antioch. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here were Gentiles that had believed upon Christ. They had trusted in him for salvation. And suddenly, these Jewish Christians are showing up saying, now you need to be circumcised, or you can't even be saved. You haven't done the next step to be saved. So there was this council meeting. What are the early church elders and apostles going to decide on this? If you go down to Acts 15.10, here's their ruling. Now, therefore, this is Peter talking to the others. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He says, why are you trying to place the law on the Gentiles' neck? We couldn't even do it. Our fathers couldn't even do it. But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. You see, that's the key. Through faith in the Lord Jesus, whether it's Jew or Gentile. And that's where Paul's going to go in chapter 3 of Romans. The early church in Galatia struggled as well. You had Judaizers coming in, telling the Gentile Galatians that they had to be circumcised. They had to trust in that as well as faith in Jesus. It was Jesus plus some work. Jesus plus circumcision. Paul is so upset at them. He says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. Now he's talking to Gentiles. He's not saying you Jews who've already been circumcised and converted to Christ. He's not talking to them. He's saying... You Gentiles take on some work to try to add to what Jesus did? Christ is no benefit to you. You're not saved. He's no benefit to you. He says, I testify again, every man who receives circumcision, that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. 
He says, look, Gentile Christian, if you want to take on the law of Moses, which none of the Jews could do, and you want to try to work your way to God, then fine, you have to obey the law perfectly. Like Jesus said to the man who came to him and said, how do I earn eternal life? Paul says, you've been severed from Christ if you think that way. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. There was an argument in the early church in Corinth. What about the Jews who've converted? They are already circumcised. And the Gentiles who are now Christians and they're not circumcised. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. You're Christians now. It's not about getting circumcised when you're not. It's not about thinking, oh, I'm a Jew who've been circumcised. I wish I could undo that. No, Paul says, obey God, live a godly life. That's what the Christian life is about. Not adding requirements to be saved. So this is a big issue in the early church. It's a big issue in Judaism in the first century. Here's what Paul continues to say in verse 25. If you are a transgressor of the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So back to the benefit and the value. He says, look, if you've been circumcised and you are truly following the Lord, the idea is with your heart, with your whole heart, and you're truly following God and you're looking to Him for salvation and you've been circumcised, sure, that's a blessing because you've obeyed the commandment. You've obeyed the Old Testament law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, which He's already said they all are, if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He's already shown that. If you go back later and read all of chapter 2, he's already shown that they're transgressors. They're violators. The word is about violating the law of God, crossing the boundary that's clearly been drawn by God. And they've crossed it. They've sinned. They've transgressed. Their lives show that. Paul says, look, I, I know that you've sinned. Everyone knows that Jews sin." You've even robbed temples to get the idols and sell them for their value. If you're a transgressor, circumcision doesn't mean anything. In fact, it's, it's actually just like uncircumcision. It's actually just like an uncircumcised Gentile. How do you think the first century Jew would have taken that? The Apostle Paul shows up and says, You're a transgressor of the law that you trust in. Your circumcision means nothing. In fact, because you're a transgressor, you're basically the same as a pagan Gentile. He's not mincing words here. He's not being gentle and just telling stories and, and showing movie clips. He's not just saying, let me be nice to you for five weeks and then maybe I'll get around to the gospel. He's simply saying, you're a sinner just like everyone else. Don't trust in the law. Don't trust in circumcision. You are a transgressor just like the Gentiles. Stop thinking you're better than them. You don't believe in Christ. You're on the same level playing field. In fact, you're more guilty because you know the Bible and you still don't follow it. The pagans don't even have the Bible. You're more guilty based on what you know. So he opens this up more in verse 26. If the uncircumcised man observes the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted, be credited as circumcision? He's not saying you can somehow earn it by being circumcised as a Gentile. The idea is that the Gentile somehow is able to obey God's righteous commands. How is that possible? Well, he's going to get to it at the end of this passage by a change of heart. 
when a Gentile, in other words, gets converted, when a Gentile is truly saved, when the Holy Spirit changes their heart, they are then able to obey the righteous commands of God. That person is better off, Paul's saying, than a circumcised Jew who doesn't obey God. A converted Gentile is better off in the judgment, of course, because they're saved, than an unconverted Jew who's been circumcised. And he's really telling them, look, this is the bad news. You've trusted in circumcision. It's not going to count for anything at the judgment unless you believe in Christ and you've shown fruit, obviously, fruit by obeying God's commandments. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 38. He says, I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Do them. Do the things that God has said. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He believed in God. He had faith in God. And then he obeyed God. Not perfectly. We can see Abraham's sin. Read Genesis. We can see it. That's not the idea here. The idea is if you truly have faith, then you will seek to do what God commands. Circumcision is an outward sign that pointed to the heart that followed after God. But if a Gentile had a changed heart and then as a result followed God's commands, that's just as good as circumcision. He's hinting at the gospel. He's saying the Gentile can follow God's commands. He's already hinting at the gospel. Paul knows this is going to offend them. He knows it. But remember in Galatians 4 when he says, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Think about that when you're talking to unbelievers. And you have to tell them the truth. Like Paul had to tell his own brethren, the Jews. And they get upset. And the person is very angry at you. Because you're basically telling them they're a sinner. Or they're a heretical Christian. Or they're a liberal Christian. Or they're not saved. And remember what Paul says to the Galatian church. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? People hate the truth. And they will react according to that hatred. But remember, if you're doing it out of love, you're telling them the best thing for them. You're telling them the truth. Paul wants the Jews to be saved. He'll say that specifically in chapter 11 of Romans. He's telling them the truth. He's saying claiming faith in God and performing outward religious rituals will not allow you to escape the judgment. He's he's getting to the idea of you need a savior. Such claims are false. Such rituals are just for show. How many times do you see Christians, or maybe you yourself, have just done things to show other people how godly you are? You didn't do them to please God. You didn't do them because your heart was running after Christ and you love Him with all your heart. You did certain things that you knew other people would notice just so they can say, what a godly Christian. What a godly man. What a godly family. We must do things from the heart. God sees the heart, and God knows our heart. Second point of this passage. Secondly, the Spirit brings about real change in the heart. Outward conformity to rituals, that doesn't save. But the Spirit changing the heart, well, that's quite a different story. Now he's, he's getting closer and closer to really opening up the gospel, which he'll do in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But for right now, he's just doubling down on this idea of being saved through circumcision. Verse 27, And he who is physically circumcised. The Greek word here is out of nature, naturally born, not being circumcised. A Gentile, in other words, by birth. If he fulfills the law, will he not judge you? That would have really upset them. 
First of all, Paul, you just said we're like pagans who've never been circumcised. Now you're telling us they're going to judge us? How is that possible? The word judge here comes first in the sentence in the original Greek. So he's really emphasizing the judgment. And, and the believing, uncircumcised Gentile is going to sit in judgment over the unbelieving Jew. That's the idea. The person who's been circumcised and trusts in that, the Jew, they're going to be judged by the one who's not been circumcised but actually follows God. Here's how the scholar Barry Horner put it. He says, if a Gentile has a heart for God, a heart that is alive to God, a heart that loves God, a heart that actively pleases God, and thus is circumcised of heart, though he be physically uncircumcised, this man is the judge of the ungodly circumcised Jew. Since he pronounces shame upon him, he declares his hypocrisy. Let's go to Matthew 8 and we'll see this in the words of Jesus. Matthew 8, 5. Let's not trust in outward appearances. Let's trust in God who works on the heart, who changes the heart. When you think about your own children, if you have children still in the home, don't think just doing lots of things will save them. Don't force them to be baptized before they're truly regenerate. Don't think by doing all these Christian things that that somehow is going to make them saved. We need to pray to God. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to do the right things according to what Christ has taught and do that with our children as we teach the truth. Matthew 8 and verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Whenever Jesus marvels, you better take notice. What's he marveling at? He marveled and said, in other words, he's amazed, and said, to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west. These are Gentiles. They're going to come from east and west. They're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the Jewish forefathers. Gentiles are going to come and recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven. When Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, there's going to be Gentiles there? Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. But the sons of the kingdom, the people who expected to be in the kingdom because of their birth, because of their nationality, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. That's eternal punishment. The people who expect to be in the kingdom based on their birthright, They'll be in hell being punished. But those who have faith, like this centurion, they'll be with the forefathers. They'll be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Paul continues in Romans 2, 27. He says here, You who, through the letter of the law and circumcision. That's the two things they trusted in, the law and circumcision. Through the letter, you're a transgressor of the law. This unbelieving Jew who followed the outward sign of circumcision. They had the Bible. They understood its commands. And they had done the thing that signified they were part of God's people. 
They had done the sign of circumcision, but they were just following the letter of the law. They were saying, yeah, I'm a Christian because I did that, that right there, that command, get circumcised. We've got that accomplished. Check the box. I'm going to heaven. And Paul says, no, you will be judged by Gentiles because you only followed the letter of the law, literally the, the correct form of the law. They did it. They went through the motions and did it. But they'll still be judged by the uncircumcised Gentile. How can this be? Well, he opens it up now in the last two verses of this paragraph. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now this is going to anger them even more. Now he's saying they're not even Jews. And in the sense that he's getting at here, they're not. Nationally, of course, they are Jews. Yes, physically they're descended from Abraham. Yes, they have the law. Yes, they have the prophets. Yes, they have the writings and wisdom. But he's talking now about the heart. A Jew, someone who's following in the, in the same faith in God that Abraham had, is not a Jew who puts their faith in outward signs. Abraham didn't do that. He didn't put his faith in circumcision. And Paul says that that's not a, a true Jew. Jew comes from the word Judah, comes from the idea of being a descendant of Abraham. The Greek word here for outwardly, phaneros, it has to do with outward appearances. And most translations don't, don't put the word appearance in there because that seems strange, right? Circumcision, appearance. But the idea is you're doing it outwardly to show other people. But there's no change here. There's nothing different inside. It's not an inward change. It's an outward change. So he says, you know who the true Jew is? Verse 29. He's a Jew who is one inwardly. Inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. It's inside. Yes, there is going to be fruit. There is going to be fruit that will be seen on the outside. But first and most important, it's inside. It's where your heart is. It's something done by the spirit, not the letter. In other words, an unbeliever, and we know this, an unbeliever today cannot pick up the Bible, read all the commands, and just start doing them, and then at the end say, I'm saved. We know the gospel is not that message. It's not obey God and you'll be saved. The gospel is have faith. And you have faith because you have a change of heart. The Spirit has done something. Side in the heart. I've already mentioned Jeremiah 9. And he, there he talks about an uncircumcised heart, getting at this theology. But God warns the Israelites even earlier in the Bible. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, very early here in Scripture. I also was acting with hostility. This is God speaking. Hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity. They're circumcised on the outside, God says, but they have an uncircumcised heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses said, they were very rebellious, so Moses says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Because they were trusting in their circumcision already. And he says, it's about the heart. Don't be a hard, stiff-necked, stubborn person who continues to rebel. Circumcise your heart. Well, here's the problem. You can't do it yourself. You can't. They can't do it. It's a supernatural work. Sometimes people get into debates. Our free will means that we decide and that we take the first step. 
But the Bible says we're depraved, we're sinners. We can't take the first step until God does something. Now, he does it through the means of others. He does it through the gospel proclamation. He does it through our faith. But God, first of all, before we even have faith, before we even repent, he changes a heart. That's what Paul's getting at. He's going to get to faith in chapter 3. But notice how he talks to the Jew here. It's got to be a change of heart by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. We're talking about regeneration. Where the Spirit makes the dead heart alive. If you made your own heart alive, then you could say you, you truly made the first step towards God. You could actually say, I did it. God just provided it out there. And then I did everything to go to God. And then I grabbed the prize and was saved. It's not what the Bible says. Go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 36 Moses already talks about how this is going to happen. He told them in chapter 10, you need to circumcise your heart. But by the end of Deuteronomy, he's giving them a little bit of the gospel here, the gospel in Deuteronomy according to Moses. A lot of people, you know, think of Moses as a law keeper because we talk about the Mosaic law. And we think, some people, some Christians think Israel doesn't have the gospel in the Old Testament. They did. It's not as clear as the new, obviously. Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't revealed all these things. But here's Deuteronomy 36. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Who's going to do it? Are the Israelites going to do it themselves? Are the Gentiles who are going to get saved in the new covenant, are they going to circumcise their own heart? No, Yahweh your God will do it. Now go forward to Ezekiel 36. This is the the best passage, the the one that opens it up the most. Ezekiel 36, they are now in exile for their sin. They were rebellious. They continue to be rebellious. They, They even took on idolatry. And God sent them into exile. But he prophesies hope through Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet is going to give Israel hope. And the hope is found not in themselves, but in God. Look at 36, 36 chapter of Ezekiel, verse 22. This is God speaking. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Lord, I deny Yahweh the covenant name of God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It has nothing to do with you and what you're doing and what you're working towards. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in the sight, in their sight. Remember Paul's already talked about dishonoring the name of God. Quoting from Isaiah, but also this is found in Ezekiel. And it's found right next to the new covenant passage of regeneration. Look at verse... My mic just went out. Still on. Okay. God says, I will prove my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations, from exile, gather you from all the lands... And bring you into your own land. That happened when Israel came back. But there's also a greater fulfillment awaiting. When God brings 
all the Jewish people back to the land someday when Christ returns. And Paul will come to that in Romans 11. He'll say, all Israel will be saved. So wait until we get there and we'll open that up. But back to Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will become clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. God's going to do it, not them. God's doing all the work in this passage. Look at this, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's circumcision language. Cut away this flesh. That's, it's a stony heart. We're going to cut it away. We're going to circumcise the heart. And I'm going to give you a new heart, actually. A brand new heart. Why? I will put my spirit within you. That's how it's going to happen. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. You can obey the Lord. Not perfectly. Just give that up. But you can indeed grow in your obedience to the Lord as the Spirit works in you. If the Spirit's in you working, you will be able to do it. And he says, you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land. So here's a land promise. Again, pointing forward to the return of Christ. You will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers. So you will be my people. I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. All the sin that you've committed against me. God will do the work to save you from it. And I will call for the grain and multiply it. And again, he gets into the fruit and the grain coming into the land. Do you see what's happening here? God's going to do the work to change a heart. It's not about outward signs. It's about the inward reality that the Spirit changes the heart. Then you obey the Lord, but you are then saved if God has changed your heart. You've trusted in Christ. He is your Savior. It's not about the letter. It's about the Spirit. And then he ends here, Paul does, by saying, and his praise. This person who has the Spirit, this person who has the circumcised heart, his Praise is not from men, but from God. I think Paul's using a play on words here because Jew comes from Judah, which means praise. And the idea of the name Judah was that they were to praise God. And they thought we're praising God by obeying the law and circumcision. And Paul says, that's not what saves you. It's the circumcised heart, the work done by the Spirit. And that person, even if it's a Gentile, gets praise from God. Praise in the sense of eternal life, eternal reward. They're not doing it for outward appearances. They're not showing off their law-keeping. They're getting praise from the Lord. The fact that they were circumcised gave the Jews a false sense of security. There's a lot of Christians today that have a false sense of security. And I say Christians loosely, nominal Christians. People that you know, family members, loved ones, maybe here today someone who trusts in an outward sign that is going to save them. I've got four, just quickly, that we'll run through. Four ways that people trust in outward signs in Christianity that lines up exactly like the Jews here. First of all, people trust in their baptism to save them. Now, circumcision doesn't turn into baptism in the New Testament. Some people teach that. That's why they baptize babies. That's not what I'm saying here. But like the Jew looked to some outward act, circumcision, today's nominal Christians look to an act, baptism, which is an outward profession of faith. They look to baptism to save them. 
The Bible is clear, though. You get baptized after you're saved. You get baptized after God has done a work in your heart. You don't get baptized to be saved. You don't get baptized and then later God saves you. You're saved. You trust in Christ. You have faith in Him. You show that with good fruit. And one of those fruits is being baptized because the Lord commanded it. Don't trust in your baptism. Never say, I trust in my baptism. Never say, well, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized at such and such a date. You know you're a Christian because you trust in Christ. And you can get assurances because you believe in the promises of God. And there's good fruit in your life. But you're a Christian because of Jesus. Secondly, nominal Christians trust in their church membership. Well, the elders affirm me as a member. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I mean, they heard my testimony. Well, sometimes people make up their testimony. Sometimes they fool themselves when they are giving their testimony and say certain things. And not every elder is always up to speed on listening to certain things that they're hearing in the testimony. And sometimes people just make mistakes. It's not based on anything man does that saves you or even the elder's affirmation. What's it based on? It's your faith in Christ. It's based on what God has done inside your heart. Not an outward symbol that I've got the church membership and I've joined the church. That doesn't make you saved. You should do that once you are saved. You should join a church. You should get baptized. But it does not save you. Thirdly, some people trust in their parents' faith to save them. A lot of children, a lot of teenagers who go to church when they're young and go to youth group. And then they go to college and think, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do because I grew up as a Christian. My parents were Christians. I know I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians and I went to church all my life and I was born a Christian. I've actually heard people say that. You can't trust in anything other than Christ for your salvation. Not circumcision, not baptism, not church membership, not your parents' faith. And then the fourth one I have is trusting and taking the Lord's Supper. This is really a Roman Catholic doctrine. That just by taking the Lord's Supper, that gives you God's grace. That saves you. Even a Roman Catholic who comes to the Lord's table and doesn't even have true and saving faith. Maybe they're just living a life of rebellion even. They believe by taking the Lord's Supper. That helps them, adds to their work, saves them. Even in Protestant churches, people think, well, I took the Lord's Supper. I took the, the bread. I, I took the juice. I must be a Christian. It doesn't save you. It's a, a sign that you have been saved. It's a sign that God's done something in your heart. It's a sign that you look to Christ for salvation and you remember that he died for you on the cross. That's it. You're looking back to the death of Christ on the cross. It says clearly in Scripture that it's a memorial. You're looking back and you're remembering and you're proclaiming that truth when you take the Lord's Supper. It's for Christians, not for unbelievers to convert themselves. Here's what the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said in the 1900s. He said, if we want to make sure that we are unlike the Jews in this passage, the, the Jews that Paul is challenging, he says, we must examine ourselves. The Jews did not. They never would. They never examined themselves. They put up this citadel around themselves and said, we are the Jews. You must not talk to us. Go and preach to the Gentiles. Do not preach to us. This is like a woman who once came up to me years ago after I had been preaching the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus' sermon, he said, Woe to you, Pharisees. 
Woe to you lawyers. Woe to you scribes. Because you do all these things to earn your salvation. But you're just headed to hell was his basic message. And a woman came up to me and said, Why are you preaching to us like we're Pharisees? Why are you preaching to us like we're Pharisees? There's no Pharisees here, she said, in this church. We're all Christians. I want you to preach on how I can be assured of my salvation. That's the same problem that Paul's dealing with, with the Jews. Don't talk to me about being saved, Paul. Don't talk to me about this Messiah that's supposedly come. We have the law. We have circumcision. We're already fine. Don't do that. Don't trust in these things that you've done, that Christians do once they're saved. Trust in Christ alone. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed in your life. If you come to Christ, he will save you. It doesn't matter if you faked Christianity for decades. You grew up in the church. You called yourself a Christian, but you've never actually lived as a Christian. Christ will save you if you truly come to him. It doesn't matter if you've spent all this time running from him, faking, calling yourself a believer, convincing everyone with the outward signs. You come to him and he will save you. Pray that God would do a work in your heart if that describes you. Pray that the Spirit would do a work in your heart. For believers here, this is how we're to preach to people who are stubborn and resistant. This is how we're to talk to people who are bound up in their law-keeping, whether that's our Roman Catholic friends and family members or some other belief system or it's works-based. We've got to show them they're sinners too. They can't trust in these outward signs. And the Bible is real clear that it's only through faith in Christ we can be saved. So let's practice evangelism like Paul did and not like the modern church often does. Let's go back to the gospel in the Bible. Lord, we do thank you for your scriptures. It keeps us on track as far as our proclamation of the gospel. It helps us to check our own hearts too, to see if we're trusting in something other than Jesus. It helps us know that you do the work in the heart. You change the heart. You give us a new heart. You cleanse us from our sin, our guilt. You take it as far as the east is from the west. And we can have an eternal life being blessed with you forever and ever. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending Paul to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel. Thank you that 2,000 years later, that gospel has been proclaimed in America and that we are saved by hearing it and believing in Jesus. Lord, let us live like it. Let us live like we are truly born again. We ask that you would do this for the name of your precious Son. Amen.